Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy Managing Editor, Hilary Milnes, and joining me today is the designer, Claire Vivier, who is calling in from her LA studio. That's right, you're in LA? Correct. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you're celebrating 10 years of your brand, Claire V. Uh, What what do you think is most different today about the world of, of fashion design, accessory design um, than, than when you started? Um, so much comes to mind. If we're talking about globally, what is different? Um, I would have to say the thing that's most timely right now for me is the fact that people really seem to care about things being made in America and in particular made in California, which our brand um, mostly is. Our, our wovens are woven outside of the country and then brought in to be finished here with the leather handles and things. But 90% of our collection is made here in Los Angeles. And I feel like um, when I first started 10 years ago and I... I started out of my house sewing the bags and then I start, and then I f- eventually found um, my first factory that we still work with today. Um, it, I thought, I think that people didn't care as much. It didn't, I don't think that I don't, I hesitate to call it a trend, but I think um, people just weren't as aware of the implications of buying local and what it means to support brands that are, um, are part of our communities that are creating jobs and things. So that's one, that's one of the things that really sticks out for me. Yeah. And what do you think has led to that raise, rise in consciousness that, that people are, are more aware of where the things that they're buying is, is coming from? Um, I think it's kind of a wave of, of awareness that's happening, probably started with the um, environmental movement where we started to think about the footprint that we have in this world. And then it kind of really got hot with um, the food industry and with, with great restaurants that we love going to and the fact that they were very vocal about eating local. Um, and it, suddenly that started to make sense to people like, oh, yeah, we want to eat vegetables that were grown as close by as possible. Um, I think that's what started to raise awareness and then has kind of trickled down to other products. And um, the people have started to realize like, oh, well, buying local products means that we're creating jobs and um, and keeping economics in the community. Right. And it's it's funny, though, because at the same time where there's this emphasis on locally made uh, things that are made in the U.S., especially we're also seeing a, a real globalization of, of retail brands. Uh, so it, how do you see that factoring into your brand strategy? Um, have you have you looked into inter- international expansion? Um, it seems like for growth for a lot of brands, especially single um, independent designer brands, uh, the growth is coming from overseas. True, true. I mean, and the world is huge, so we definitely don't plan on just staying a local company. And while we do have seven stores of our own in the U.S., we do um, have quite a good business internationally, especially in Japan and Korea. Um, and we're really excited about a pop-up that we're doing at Le Beau Marché in Paris in um, September and October. So we we um, 
are quite aware of the international business that um, has yet to be attained by our company, but we're definitely that's definitely on our radar, and we want to be a global company. Um, I, I think we are doing the best we can in terms of. Yes, we are a California company, and we're producing in the U.S. Which, in California, which means we're creating jobs in California, which means we're doing a lot for our community. We don't just want to be a California company; we want to be sold around the world. So, I feel like you can, as, if, as a company, if you're as thoughtful as you can be and as aware as you can be, that's already huge. Right, absolutely. And, and so, do you think that as a designer, when you started? Are there more pressures today to think about things like international growth and, and, and just catering to this broader customer and, and how to navigate the the values that customers are really vocal about today? Um, you know, how do you deal with it? It seems like there's like a crush of expectations that designer brands have to navigate, whereas before they were kind of able to, just, you know, sell to a wholesale retailer and and that was the biggest win for their business. Well, I don't think I, I try not to pay too much attention to it because I think if we, um, um, I think you can get intimid- intimidated by all of the issues if you start to think about them all. Right. <laughs> and, um, um, I try to just create a brand that um, people like and want to buy um, in our own community, like in our own style, in our own aesthetic. And I think it has been working. So um, the good thing about our brand is that it, it does seem to have pretty international appeal. It's very um, simple but chic and it has a bit of playfulness to it. There's a lot of color. There's some there's some amount of humor to it. And I think um, somehow that transcends globally. We also have a lot of French incorporated into the brand because my husband's French and we've been together for 20 years, so I'm very much... French and my aesthetic and my family life. Um, so there is that element of um, biculturalism. Um, but in terms of do I worry or how I deal with things since when I started 10 years ago, when I started, I really started out of my house, sewing the bags myself and in one room in my house. So I really, as, as you know, I'm sure you've talked to other entrepreneurs who start things on their own and in their own house. There's really a period of time where you're, you don't even know if you are, if you have a real business. You keep putting one foot in front of the other, and you keep hoping that what you're doing is going to amount to a business that you'll be able to keep doing the next day and the next week and the next month. But you're really not sure of that, especially if you're completely self-funded, as my business was. It's not like I went out and raised capital when I started the company. I just started and just, you know, organically grew the company on the cash that was generated. Um, so. I really wasn't concerned with those things back when I started 10 years ago. Those problems of thinking about the global um, retail economy and all that has really come about in the last couple of years when I've started to open the stores and started to think about, okay, well, I would like to have a store in Paris and I would love to have a store in London and Korea and Japan um, as well. So that's when I've really started to think um, critically about the different shopping habits and what it how the world is changing, you know, shopping online and shopping in person. So. Right. Yeah. And how has that changed your direct retail strategy? Uh, you know, I think the hardest part for, for a small brand like yours that had, you know, like you said, it started out of your, out of your home. So uh, brands used to be able to rely on, on these super robust, complex retail partners to do 
to do the job for them once they made the product. Uh, and now every brand has to be a retailer as well. Yeah. And the lucky thing for me is that I really started out as a retailer because I started out with a website um, back in, you know, before I say that this is our 10 year anniversary because 10 years is when I got um, my bags into my first wholesale account, which at the time was Mohawk General Store in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, I had a website. So I really, I was, I started out as, as a direct to consumer um, business, although I, we didn't have the term direct to consumer at the time. Right. <laughs> it was just, that was just how I knew how to start a business. I made a very, um, rudimentary website and took pictures of my bags in my backyard, photoshopped them, brightened them up and cropped them and put them on the website. Um, and luckily, um, there were things back then like daily candy and, um, other, you know, magazines and things where you could direct traffic back to your own website. Um, I think the, that's been a huge advantage. The fact that I've never been intimidated to, um, sell direct to consumer and have my own website. Um, a commercial website has been really to my advantage because I still meet brands to this day who aren't even selling on their website and they're big working brands who mm-hmm. have great, we have wholesale accounts. And I think, my God, what is, what are you doing? Why are you not selling direct to consumer? But <laughs> that just, that just wasn't part of their, um, their strategy from the beginning. So I do feel lucky that that's the way I started because I had that already ingrained into me that this pot, that I, it was possible to sell directly to my customer. So, uh, in 2012, when I had the opportunity to open my own store in, in Silver Lake, which is the neighborhood I live in Los Angeles, it was very, it wasn't intimidating. It made a lot of sense to me. It was just like, great, this is, this is my world. And I want to, I want to be able to show the entire aesthetic of the brand. Um, the pro I, the, your question is interesting because what's happening to wholesale strategies when we can't really depend on those anymore because we have, um, you know, the decline of the retail economy or decline of big department stores, all the issues that are happening in retail. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although they are still very necessary and we have great partners like Nordstrom and Shop Up and Net-A-Porter, big retailers like that who are wonderful partners to us and have a lot of, a lot more power and marketing capability than we do. Those are, that's, those are brilliant partners to have and we'll, we'll keep them as long as possible. Um, and nurture them, but mm-hmm. it, it 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 is extremely more and more important to have um, your own direct retail strategy. Um, so we've been doing that with our opening a store, basically a store a year almost since 2012. And I think with the power of things like Instagram, I don't, I wouldn't say that it's by by no means is it as powerful as being in a great re, um, retail partner like a Nordstrom or something like that, but it is it it is allowing people um, a great form of direct marketing to people that Facebook and Instagram that we didn't have um, at least when I was starting out. Mm-hmm. So it it's a great advantage that people have at this point. So. Yeah. So you think a retail partner like Nordstrom is still more powerful and, and influential over customers than something like Instagram, which is really important for fashion brands to be able to use today. Well, I wouldn't, I don't know that I could compare the two. What I meant by that was um, they have access to 
so many different customers because the customers at the at the at those um, department stores around the country are going in for different reasons. They're not going in for Clear V, but they might go in to look for bags and they are going to see Claire V and perhaps buy it there. So I mean that it's that kind of power where a, a Facebook and a Instagram, while you can market to um, lookalike customer bases, you can't so much as just go out and grab whoever you want. You can't, you, it's harder to get in front of people's faces, I think, or get in front of their eyes. Um, I think because most of the, power that you have are the people that are already following you. Um, so you have that kind of power. So if you have a hundred thousand followers or a million followers, that's, that's great. <laughs> well, if you have a million, that's great. But yeah. That's, that's probably a lot of power, but I don't know. I just think a physical store and being in physical locations where the shoppers are going is, 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 um, very powerful. And it's, I think, what we're doing on Facebook, brands are doing is we're trying, we're going out and uh, there's Facebook advertising and different things, and you start to talk about the cost per customer and things like that. And I think, well, if you just get into a Nordstrom or a different a Bloomingdale's or a different department store or different boutiques around the country, um, you, that's the almost the equivalent of paying for a customer seeing your ad. Right. Yeah. I'm glad you made that point because that's where that's a, it's a slippery slope or a dangerous hole to dig yourself into if you grow yes. your brand by, by buying customers yes. through advertising. Yes. I think, I think yeah. the direct to consumer brands that have cropped up since you've launched your brand are, are kind of learning that lesson. Uh, but of course the, the advantage of, of prioritizing direct over wholesale is that data, that direct access to the customer, um, the ability to, you know, use the information around people who've bought the brand in order to, to grow it as well. So has that, you mentioned you, you were always had a direct retail strategy. Did you always have a customer data strategy? No, we didn't. Um, I, because I wasn't so technologically savvy. I just was, um, I think an attractive brand from people. So I was just, I was attracting customers and it was very organic and just an authentic, um, business strategy and um in the past couple years especially with the hiring of a of a good director of e-commerce we've really learned a lot more about how to work with the data that we have uh, we have on our customer base Mm -hmm. but um i'm I'm sure it's more on your on your radar now then yes very much so yes very much so right which which goes back to the point that you know designer brands have to have more capabilities than, than they had maybe if they launched, um, in the past 10 years. So, Oh yeah, by far. Yeah. So how does that work in terms of changing? Has it changed the way you've designed products or the way you've opened stores? How has that new attention to data changed the business? Well, one of the wonderful things, it's very, very basic, but it's very wonderful is that you, we know where our customers are. So we know where we can safely open stores, which is what we've done with each of the seven stores we've opened. And we will continue to do with the eighth when we open it in 2019. But we know I like to open because we are, you know, founder driven band. We're a small, smallish brand. Um, we, I like to 
I, I'm not doing anything, any vanity projects. Like I really want to open stores where our customer is and, and we really are serving a purpose by being there and not just um, marketing the company by saying we're on some fancy street somewhere where the rents are going to be extremely high and it's going to be very stressful. I'd rather just be where it's a community where people are walking, moms are walking home from school with their kids and um Teenagers are walking to the metro station or the subway station and want to be in a community where people are out and about and it adds something to that community to have a store there. And where I know we're going to have foot traffic mm -hmm. in our own store, where we're going to make sense, the brand makes sense. Because I don't want to have the worry of a store sitting somewhere that's not doing well, just mm -hmm. because it looks good on our business card to say we have a store on Boulevard Saint-Germain in Paris or something right. that that diptyque candle is sitting right in front of me that's why I said that but you know just <laughs> some kind of fancy street address you know um, but that's one of the very basic ways we've used that kind of data from our website we know where our customers are buying from mm -hmm. um, and other ways has it influenced design at all um, I, I don't know we have we have um, contact with our customers at our stores. We get a lot of feedback from, for example, the, the Manhattan customer is different from the Santa Monica customer. Um, in Manhattan, they'll ask for a lot bags with zippers. We want bags with zippers. We want work bags that close. We want um, dark-colored bags. So we know that we can kind of micro-merchandise mer for the stores, but I don't know that we're exactly designing, but we keep in mind the... the um, the, um, the how do you say desires that people are are looking for mm -hmm. definitely we we listen to our customers in that way for sure but I can't I can't say that I'm I think design is a real art form so I can't say that I'm the artistic part of it is directly from listening to customers but definitely functionality is right and and the data kind of comes more into play on the back end of of the logistics of the business design almost is is more of like a you know, should be, it should be left to, to you, the person who started the brand. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Right. So, so today we, you know, we obviously talked about the danger of growing the brand by buying customers, but you know, there is some sort of some wholesale limitations, uh, that, that designers have to navigate as well. Where do you see the biggest opportunities for growth now? Um, you, you mentioned you've been opening stores and where, and, and going more international, but, but where else are you planning on, on growing the brand. And, and do you think that is scale the biggest priority? Uh, how, how do you manage those expectations at the same time? Um, scale is definitely not the biggest priority. I don't think we need to be, um, we will grow at an organic growth. We're not, we are um, very much like um, growing on a cash flow basis. We're not, um, again, not taking out more money than we need and things like that. We don't have um, capital investment that we need to keep growing at a certain pace, which is really um, a wonderful place to be in and hope we can stay there for as long as possible. Right. Um, but we will continue to grow the retail stores. There, It's a really um, satisfying way for me to be able to show the entire brand um, and really get to know the, the customer because I'll spend time wherever we're going and members from my team will spend time and uh, we get to tell our story in that community um, but really our, we, have, we have so many places that we are focusing on right now but our website is doing incredibly well so we are um, 
focusing 2018 really on the website and how we are um, optimizing all the features on it and serving our customers best and how we can attract more people to it. Great. And when you say optimizing, do you mean uh, for mobile? How do you, to to slightly tweak my question, how do you prioritize the, the web experience? Because I think a lot of times brands and, and retailers get a little bit distracted by the flashiest parts of a website and maybe not the most functional. Mm, yeah, I think we're pretty... Um, scrappy and functional company like we try to what are the bare bones of what people are looking for and what's going to make it um, the most optimal and quick experience without being too flashy keeping in mind that some things are very attractive to people like video we um to see how the bag is worn on a body and maybe in a small video is is helpful to people so that is that's one way we're going to be optimizing the um, site's in the next couple months, couple months is adding video, um, but really optimizing just means how do you make it intuitive enough and kind of the least amount of clicks. So we're mm-hmm. always always analyzing that. Right, just making it easy to purchase as possible. <laughs> yeah. So, so you have the direct and wholesale businesses. Are you still? Is it more direct led or or more sales coming from wholesale? It's really exciting. I think this year in 2018, I think we are about. Um, Probably heading into 6535, or I would say 60% of seat Clairview retail, which includes our website, and 30% of wholesale, and um, 10% of special projects and different different collaborations that we're doing. Um, and it's fun because the reason I say that's exciting is because it's that means that our because our retail. Business has not gone down. That just means that our retail has grown, and that's very exciting. Yeah, that's a good place to be. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned collaboration. So how, and that's obviously a pretty, um, you know, consistent part of the business. So what? How do you approach those? Who do you choose to collaborate with? And how do you ultimately make sure that it's not uh, just a flash in the pan, but those are those are becoming Clarivy customers. Well, I think the only way we know how to do it is just by being um, intuitive and authentic about it, meaning these are just people who are kind of our friends and that kind of makes sense to do something with because we like their aesthetic and we like, we know, we want to work together. Um, So, for example, when we did Shoes with Tom's recently, we are friends with the creative director of Tom's and John Whitledge and... And we um, were friends with the head of one of the people in marketing over there. So when they approached us to do this project, we immediately said, yes, that was, that made sense. We don't make shoes. We like the give back element of the philanthropic element of Tom's. We knew we could make something cute and look like our brand and, and do something good at the same time. So that was just like, I feel like all of our collaborations have to be kind of easy. They have to just make sense very quickly. Um, The Garrett Light, um, sunglass collaboration is another great example of that. And we're in, I don't know, like a, we're in, we're in a couple of years in now. We just keep running the same sunnies in different colors at this point because they're just keep selling and they're, it's a shape that's a cat eye shape. Um, that it really seems to resonate well with a lot of people. It looks good on a lot of different faces. So, um, Garrett, again, he's a Los Angeles designer and a friend of ours and, um, we don't make sunnies. That was really, he, I really respect his work a lot. I love all of his designs. So that was a real treat to be able to work with him. 
Um, I feel like all of them we end up doing just come from personal relationships, which is really fun. Yeah, no, I think uh, just keep selling until they <laughs> until they stop selling is a good way to approach something like this. Uh, but 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 yeah, but I'm sure I think for a lot of designers, there's more pressure to make products more often and, and a lot of times collaborations then come into play there because you know it's it's sharing some of the work with with an outside brand how do you make sure that it doesn't become like a, a more of a crutch than a strategy um in order to just get more product out there i think that it's it's um clearly never occurred to me that it would become a crutch um we're really busy with our own with our own um designing our own collections and um selling our own collections that they're doing well. So it's not something we need to do. It's something that we like to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and like you said, the core focus is on the main product collections. Uh, so to that end, as, as there's pressure to do more, have you increased the number of collections or products that you're making a year as, as customers, you know, are said to be just in, in search of newness all the time, the Zara effect we hear about so often. Yeah, we are attuned to that. We're attuned to the fact that people like to, when they walk in our stores or visit the website, they like to visit what's new. That's on our website, the first thing that they click on. Um, or when they walk in our stores and they live in the community, they want to be able to come in once a week and see new stuff. So we are aware of that. I, I think we are... Um, addressing that in different ways. Like we are introducing, um, capsule collections at, at different parts of the year, which we hadn't been doing, for example, a small summer injection when we feel like there's not, it doesn't really fall within the normal seasons, but we know that the stores could use a little bit of newness. So we are in tune to it, but, um, the cool thing about, um, making things locally is that things are coming in all year long. They're coming in daily. All new product is coming into our studio daily and is going out um, to our stores on a weekly basis. So mm -hmm. it it's because it's produced locally, it doesn't like come back to us in one big lump. It comes mm -hmm. back to us <laughs> in like all the new floors are in, all the new tropes are in, all the new weekends are in. So we're just we're constantly allocating to the stores. So there is newness happening. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, you know, I mean, we can't, obviously can't compete with the kind of craziness that goes on in fast fashion. Um, but I don't I don't think that I'm not going to get tripped up on that either because it's a, it's a different customer and we can't compete. And I'm hoping that people will start to become a little bit more aware of the detriments of fast fashion. Right. Absolutely. So, so it sounds like it's, you know, the strategy is to keep focused on on what you do best keep your head above water uh have you also have you ever been tempted to become more of a lifestyle brand we've seen so many single product or single category brands start to branch out into other categories it's that you know we really want to be relevant to everyone's to every point of someone's lifestyle um but it's been 10 years and and you're still corely uh handbag brand how do you stay firmly in that space and grow without expanding into other categories well, we've expanded a bit into apparel, so the t-shirts and sweatshirts do extremely well for us. Um, so we and and the collaborations are a great way for us to test different markets. Um, and we pretty much see that the things that we do and we have our name on um, really sell well in our stores. So we we are um, open to getting into new categories, and I really hope one day we will 
do that. I think we're perfectly poised to be a lifestyle brand for sure. We have our own stores. We have the spaces. We have uh, the aesthetic that can translate to a lot of different categories. Um, however, I never want to do anything without being um, ready to do it. And right now, the size of our company is not really conducive to spreading ourselves too thin because then I think you're just doing a lot of stuff poorly instead of um, a couple things great. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Uh, great. Well, thank you so much, Claire. I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's so cool. Yeah, of course. And thank you for joining us. A special thanks to Aditi Songol, the producer of this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. And in the meantime, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have. 